We're going to be in Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3. And the title of the sermon is Christ Our Confidence. And so if you choose, if you want to turn with me there. Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Father, you have, have brought us here this morning to bring glory to you and to build up your people and to increase our love and faith in you. We ask that you would make this so in the name of your Son, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3, King David demonstrates tremendous confidence over his enemies through his trust in God's protection over him, that he will preserve his life. Now, we don't know when King David wrote this psalm. It could have been before he was king, when he was running from King Saul to preserve his life, or it could have been at a time after. Now, it's obvious from the first couple verses that David's confidence is based off of previous incidents where God had delivered him from his enemies. He speaks of the fall of his enemies in the past tense, and this is often the case in the life of the believer. Our faith and trust in God grows when he brings trial and adversity into our life, and then he brings us through it. And so David looked at future adversity with confidence based on what God had done for him in the past. And so we should do likewise. We should look to the future with confidence based on what God has done for us and the past deliveries he has granted us as well. There is a difference, however, in the confidence that King David had and the confidence that we can have. We are under a different covenant. We have different promises and a different purpose. And we, have to, <clears throat> we must understand <clears throat> this difference in order to truly benefit from this psalm and to apply it to ourselves properly. Now the deliverance that King David speaks of in this psalm, for the most part, is physical in nature. David uh, was, uh, as scripture tells us, a man of bloodshed, who is delivered from countless attacks on his life before and after he was king. Even as a young shepherd boy, God gave David victory over a lion and a bear. Now, in addition to his personal experience of God's favor towards him over his enemies, David had other reasons to be confident in the face of opposition. At a, at a young age, David was anointed by the prophet Samuel to succeed King Saul as the next king over Israel. And even in his young age, David had great faith in God. He demonstrated this, or one of the ways he demonstrated this was by defeating the Philistine giant Goliath. And so because he had this great faith, David knew 
that God would not falter in making him king over Israel as God had promised. God is true to his word. David knew this. In addition to this, David is under the Old Covenant. Now the Old Covenant promised protection and victory over the enemy as long as the nation was faithful to the covenant. If you want, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 28 later today and you'll see that this is the case. Now here's the thing. Once Israel started to have an earthly king, that king represented the entire nation before God. And so the nation benefited from the king's faithfulness. And a faithful king would steer the nation towards covenant obedience. Now, I think we're all pretty familiar with King David, and we know that he was not a perfect king. But David did love the Lord. He did, and he sought him out in his life, and he was still considered a great king of Israel, even with all of his tragic faults by the grace of God. 1 Kings 11, 4-6 speaks of David after he was dead as a man who was fully devoted to God. Now, on top of this, God enters into a covenant with David, which we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what he does is God tells David that one of his descendants is going to sit on his throne, and God will establish this descendant's kingdom forever. And this descendant, of course, is none other than Jesus the Messiah. Remember, one of the titles that was attributed to Jesus was Son of David. And so David had multiple reason to boast in God, not himself, but to boast in God before his enemies. David essentially knew that a blade was never going to pierce his throat. Now David, of course, knew that one day he was going to die, right? He was human. But it was not before God had accomplished all that he had intended through David's life. And God actually hints at this at verse 12 in 2 Samuel uh, 7, when he tells David that he will lie down with his father's, when his days are complete. Now, the question for us is, how does being under the new covenant change how we apply this psalm to ourselves? What good, what good does God still intend for his people in this psalm, specifically today from verses 1 through 3? Now, so, so here's where I, oh, I want us to go. Here's the goal. I want us to see that our confidence, our confidence in the face of our enemies comes from Jesus Christ and the blessings that he won through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, in verses 1 through 3, David makes the boldest statements of fearlessness when facing the threat of death at the hand of his enemies. He asks two rhetorical questions. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Well, the answer is no one. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Again, the answer is no one. And then in verse 3, David says, even if war rises against me, not just an individual or a group or a tribe, David says, if a nation comes for my life, I will not fear. It's pretty bold. But for the saints under the new covenant, we cannot share this confidence with David regarding our physical life. In fact, we would be foolish to have the same kind of confidence that David had. Now, why is that? 
Well, I think the first obvious reason is we're not King David. <laughs> okay, the, the, the Messiah was to come through or from the nation of Israel through the promise that God had made to Abraham to bless the nations through one of his offspring. Now that promise found its fulfillment through, not in, there's a big difference there, found its fulfillment through the person of King David. And so King David's life was made necessary to bring about the Messiah. Now, something real important here. The life of every single Christian is necessary because every single human being that God promised to his son, Jesus, that Jesus died for, will come into existence, they will be created, and they will be saved. Every single redeemed sinner promised to Jesus, Jesus will have as his own. And so as far as God being truthful and trustworthy to what he has ordained, our life is just as necessary as King David's was. Now here's the difference, and it's a big difference. David was given direct revelation by God concerning himself. None of us will specifically find our name in the Bible. I hope you don't think it's there. <laughs> okay, so none of us can say, see, God has promised that I can't die until this or that has happened by or through me. All right, and not only that, we believe in a completed canon and that God has ceased to give special revelation that bears his direct authority. Let's look at our confession, or chapter 1 of our confession, paragraph 6. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures, and here it is, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. And so if anyone claims God has told them by direct revelation that they cannot die until something has been done with their life, they are not to be believed. Now, another reason which I've already alluded to is that we are under a new covenant. Now, this is the biggest reason that our confidence differs from King David's. Now, we're obviously not going to go through all the differences to the Old and New Covenant, although that would be a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> the core difference that pertains to us this morning in Psalm 27 is that, again, under the Old Covenant, faithfulness and holiness promised protection from the enemy. Under the New Covenant, faithfulness and holiness might very well lead to persecution and even death. In fact, for millions of Christians all over the world for the past 2,000 years, faithfulness and holiness did lead to imprisonment and torture and death. And this shouldn't be surprising to us because God has told us this in his word that this very well might happen. Let's listen to our Lord in John 15, 20. He is speaking to us. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, some Christians might say, well, look, David, these words were spoken directly to the apostles, and the new covenant had not been formally instituted yet. 
And so this warning from Jesus doesn't pertain to the whole church. Well, let's look at what God has to say in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, which is every true Christian, will be persecuted. Now this statement is made by Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, well into the New Covenant era. And so God himself is telling his people, he's telling us, that being faithful and living a righteous and holy life no longer guarantees physical protection from our enemies. In fact, he's told us here that it will lead to the opposite result. Living a life that is pleasing to the Lord because you love him in a world that hates him will cause them to hate and persecute you too, just like they did to his son. And so when we read these verses, we can't say with David, bring it on, right? You can't touch me until, Don, until God is completely done with my life. We can't say that. And folks, this is why it is so important to know how to rightly divide the word of truth. We need to understand the covenants so we know how they do or do not pertain to us. Now, folks, I, I am weary, okay, and, I, and I, I'm not saying that this is done intentionally by other pastors, but I am weary of hearing 2 Chronicles 7.14 being politicized by pastors and then being wrongly applied to Christians in America. Now, some of you already know what I'm talking about. But I still want to read 2 Chronicles 7.14. It says, And, you can say, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. This is an old covenant promise given to ethnic Israel under the old covenant and you can find it in deuteronomy chapter 30 we aren't under the old covenant and we are not ethnic israel under the new covenant if christians in america humble themselves and pray and seek the lord with all their heart then christians in america might see persecution in this country we have never seen before now let me pause here for a moment and speak to those of you who do not yet belong to the lord or may not what I'm telling you about the Christian faith does not naturally appeal to human nature, right? Okay, I have essentially told you that if you become a Christian, it may bring suffering and persecution into your life and even death before you live it out. Christianity is not a religion that was made up, okay, to swindle people so that or to, so that they can be manipulated by people who are hungering for power. Not if it is properly taught and presented. Okay, we urge you to repent and turn to Jesus Christ by faith, not because we're, we're not trying to build our own little kingdom. It's not for our own advantage. We are telling you to turn to Yahweh because we believe he is the one true God and your eternity depends on it. It does. This is not the good Sunday, or Sunday Good Samaritan Club. Okay, suffering and persecution, is, it's a lousy sales pitch because we're not selling you anything. 
We believe the gospel is true. And if we do end up suffering in this life, the promises of the gospel are more than worth it. Listen to Romans 8.18. It says that the suffering we may endure in this life, look at this, are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. All right, so now after all this uplifting talk <laughs> of persecution and suffering, we're not done yet though, okay? But after all this uplifting talk of persecution and suffering that is promised to us for being faithful to God, you might be asking, well, David, what is the good for us in these verses? You said earlier God still intends good for his people in this psalm. And the good news is there's actually quite a bit. The first thing that we would be glad to hear of is that even though protection is not promised, it doesn't mean that God still won't provide it. That's right. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, we're not going to read them. But what happens is we learn that King Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death, and he had Peter put into prison and had four squads of soldiers to guard him. They didn't want Peter to leave. <laughs> now the saints pray for Peter, Christians, they pray for Peter, and the Lord answers their prayer and miraculously delivers Peter from the prison past all the guards. Now in verse 11 it says this, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So you see, look, look what happened here. God didn't intervene on behalf of James, the brother of John, but he answered the saints' request to protect and deliver Peter. And so here's the thing. Until the Lord is done with us, he will protect us and he will preserve our life. Now, we don't know when this is. We don't, we don't know when the Lord is done with us individually or even corporately. And so here's the thing, folks. It is good and it is right for us to ask the Lord to protect us and to preserve our life. The Psalms are filled with those requests. All right. God, God is not displeased with us if we ask for his protection from those who seek to harm us. And even though he hasn't promised it many times, he still grants it. He does. And here's the thing, folks. All of us being here this morning is actually, we are living proof that, this, that, that that's true. We are living proof of this reality. Folks, look, just because we have, and I know you all know this, just because we have religious liberty in America doesn't mean that we don't have people in this country who uh, desire to harm us or even kill us. All right, we do, and dare I say, even from among our own government, this may be the case. Yet here we are, being protected by God in Clarksville, Tennessee. We are here freely worshiping God. We have our own Bibles. We can go out and freely share the gospel without the threat of imprisonment. In fact, some of you may be here because somebody from this church shared the gospel with you. All right, and folks, look, this is nothing less than God's protection over us, even under the new covenant. All right, now, the situation in our nation seems to, to increasingly look bad for Christians, I think, if we're honest. All right, but again, that doesn't mean we should stop asking the Lord to spare us by, from being harmed by those who hate us. Okay, God may still grant us the protection that we currently enjoy. 
All right. Now, what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't? What if God has decided that the harsh persecution that many Christians all over the world suffer and have been suffering should finally reach the shores of America? What comfort is there for us in the face of our enemies then? Well, for one, we have to realize, folks, that our suffering is never in vain. What the world and the devil intends for evil, God, in his wisdom and in his power, uses for the glory of his name and the eternal good for his people. There is no greater example of this than the cross of our Lord. Satan thought he had won, or was at least winning when Jesus was on the cross, but instead, God was, was securing eternal glory for all of his people. God will use whatever suffering he allows for the good of his church. Now, he does this in more ways than one, and we're going to look at some of them. Now, one of the ways is that suffering increases our faith. Suffering increases our faith. Folks, sometimes we find ourselves in such a dire situation that there is no way we can rely on anyone or anything other than God to see us through it. Our faith in God is tested. And so here's what we ask. Can God get me through this? Or better yet, because we know we can, we say, will he get me through this? That's what we ask. And what happens is when we come out on the other side of the tunnel of doubt and despair, we come out with a real experience, a real experience of God's ability and willingness, both, to get us through great difficulty. <clears throat> this was even the experience of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. Look at what he says. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our own strength so that we despaired even of life. This is the Apostle Paul. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And so even the Apostle Paul suffered great affliction at the hands of his enemies, yet God used it to grow his faith and his hope in God alone. What about Lazarus? Jesus purposely refrained from helping Lazarus so that he could die. Jesus wanted Lazarus to die. All right? And he knew how painful Lazarus is. It was painful to him. He knew how painful Lazarus' death would be for Mary and Martha, yet he orchestrated the entire event. Why? So that he could raise Lazarus from the dead. And what happened? What was the result of this painful ordeal for Mary and Martha? That they had a greater faith in Jesus which was of much greater value than not going through the pain of losing their brother. All right, as our trust in God grows, what happens? 
we submit more of our life to him willingly and with greater joy and confidence. And so what happens? We persevere in faith. We persevere in faith. Now, another way that God uses suffering for our good is to expose our idols. Now, look, folks, our idols replace God. That's what they do. They replace God in some form or fashion in our life. And though it can be painful, maybe very painful, look at what he does. He removes them through suffering, and then he puts himself in their place. Remember, Yahweh is a jealous God. He will not share his beloved. Idols are false. They are destructive to our lives. They dishonor God. There is nothing good in them. Pleasure, for example, can become, it's not an idol in and of itself. We're about to go eat a whole lot of good food, right? That's not sinful. But earthly pleasure, for example, can become an idol that says ultimate satisfaction is found in me and not in God. And what happens is we find out it never produces what it promises It enslaves us to itself, making more false promises that drag us into eventual despair. If if you don't believe me, ask King Solomon. He had all that his heart could ask for in this world, and afterwards, what did he call it? He called it vanity of vanities. Only God and the glory that awaits his people in the new world can bring us the peace and the joy and the satisfaction that we will vainly, vainly search for here. Never going to find it here. Not in this life, not in this world. Idols promise what only God can give. Now sometimes, again, we have such a strong attachment to our idols that if it takes something as harsh as suffering, okay, or it will take something as harsh as suffering for God to expose them and remove them. All right, listen listen to John Newton, the author of uh, the song Amazing Grace. He says, these inward trials I design from sin and self to set thee free, to break thy schemes for earthly joy, that thou mayest find they all in me. Now, still another way that God uses suffering for our good is to manifest his superior worth above all else to a dying world. Countless saints throughout history have refused to deny Christ even under torture or the threat of death. Hebrews 11.35 speaks of women who endured torture not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. They have shown their enemies that Jesus and the world to come is well worth whatever they are suffering at their hands. Now, Pastor Wayne Yee of Early Rain Covenant Church, somebody may, some of you may be familiar with him. We have prayed for him in this church. He was arrested in 2018 by the Chinese government, and he was sentenced to nine years in prison. Now, look, I'm paraphrasing what he, he wrote a letter. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, look, his willingness to suffer for Jesus is not for the sake of bringing religious freedom to China. He says it's to point China and the rest of the world to the Lord and to the world to come. It's to point people to a better world. When the world takes all that you have in this life and even threatens your very life itself, 
but you still cling to Christ, you manifest his supreme value to your enemies with the hope, with the hope that they will want what you have. Many of the communist soldiers who vis viciously tortured, I can't tell you what they did, I'll never be allowed behind this pulpit again. Many of the communist soldiers viciously, who viciously tortured Christians in the Romanian prisons were converted to Christ through the Christians' refusal to deny Jesus no matter what was done to them. But there's more. In addition to even these, we are told that our suffering for the sake of righteousness brings us great reward in the life to come. Let's look at what our Lord told us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Look at the words he uses. He says, Blessed, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking to people who have faith, who believe in God's promises yet to come. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. A lot of uplifting words here. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, there is a difference of opinion among Christians all right, about how being rewarded is, is going to play out in the world to come. We're not going to discuss that. But here's the thing, folks. Jesus says that the rewards are so great. They are so great that our afflictions should cause us to rejoice and be glad. Again, the Bible is not a book just written for anybody. It goes against human nature. It goes against human wisdom because it's God's book. The worst... The worst that our enemies can do is take away that which we already cannot keep. Yet the reward is eternal and it is glorious. Amen. And so, and this isn't all of them, but the, what we've discussed, all these different aspects of suffering are for our good. Greater faith, the purging of idols, and the magnifying of God, what do they do? They bring us into greater conformity to the character of Christ. And that is God's uppermost his supreme uppermost concern for every one of his children he saves us so he can sanctify us and make us more like his son why because the more we reflect jesus the closer we get to fulfilling our created purpose which is to glorify our creator and so suffering at the hands of our enemies will never be arbitrary it will never be in vain and it will never be without great reward. Amen. Right? If we're faithful to the end. Now, the next question that I want to address is, what about while we are suffering? Right? We might be thinking about that too. Are we left to ourselves while we endure it? And the answer, of, of course, is no. Now, one thing we know as Christians, that we are both corporately excuse me, and individually indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're told, we're told so much in 1 Corinthians 6.19, it makes it very clear that each Christian is a temple of God and, the, and that the Lord indwells each true believer. And so this means that according to the word of God, 
not our emotions and our feelings, because I think if we're honest, we don't normally feel like we are being indwelt by the creator of the universe who spoke everything into existence out of nothing. We may not feel that way very often, but according to the word of God, we are told that that is in fact the case. That's true. All right, the spirit of God is directly present with us wherever we are. Listen to King David in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. He says, where can I go from your spirit? He says, or where can I flee from your presence? He says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. He says, if I make my bed in Sheol, the underworld, underworld Sheol, behold, you are there. He says, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So folks, look, we couldn't escape the very presence of God even if we wanted to. And so look, if we ever find ourselves in prison, or I pray, Lord forbid, even in an interrogation room being threatened with torture, God is there. All right, but now the next question we're going to ask is, well, what will God do? He's there. What's he going to do? Will he help me? How will he help me? All right, now, in Daniel chapter 3, very familiar story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the image of gold that is set up by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so as a penalty, all of them are bound, and they are thrown into a blazing furnace of fire that should have absolutely engulfed them as soon as they were thrown into it, immediately engulfed them in flames. Now, while they're in the furnace, though, there is a fourth figure of glory that is seen in the furnace, and they're all unbound. They're walking around. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all come out of that fire completely and utterly unscathed, completely unharmed. God delivered them from experiencing any pain whatsoever. But... God does not always intervene for his children in this way, does he? Sometimes God allows us to suffer whatever pain our enemies choose to inflict on us. All right, instead of rescuing us from it, instead, he gives us the strength or the grace, whatever it is we need to endure it in faith. All right, now maybe the Lord will subdue the pain to make it more tolerable. Or he may keep our afflictors from carrying out all that they intend to carry out. Now, this is not what we want to hear, is it? For honest, we don't want to hear that. You know, he's saying, David, you know what? You should have stopped at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You ruined the meal. All right? But here's the thing, folks. If, if you feel that way, if we feel that way, guess what? We're in good company. Because the Lord Jesus himself, in his, in his humanity, he felt the same way before his suffering on the cross. Now, here's the key to this. It's faith. Pastor Ron is preaching through Hebrews chapter 11. We must believe that God is not only able, not just able, but willing. That's always what we're asking ourselves. We know if you're a Christian, you know who God is. That's always, is he willing? We have to believe that God is not only able, but willing to help us get through even something as horrible as torture. We have to believe. We have to trust God. 
All right, now Richard Warren Brandt, a man I've mentioned before. I hope you're not tired of hearing of him. It probably won't be the last time if I'm, if I'm back up here. But he spent a total of 14 years in communist prisons in Romania. He was a pastor. He was not some special forces, Delta Force, Navy sealed, highly trained super soldier who had some unnatural tolerance to pain. Okay, he, he was just like you and me. All right, he was just a regular person. He first spent eight years in prison, and then he was released. Now, he endured brutal torture, such as he, he, would, he would have his hands cuffed, he would be chained to the ceiling, and they would burn him until the pain was so intense he would pass out from the pain. And then they would burn him again until he, so that he would wake back up so that they could continually repeat the process. He never once denied Christ, not one time. God had so strengthened this man to stay faithful that after he was released from prison, get this, he prayed and told the Lord, if you want me back in those prisons for the sake of your name, send me back in. And two years later, the Lord answered his prayer and sent him back into those brutal, brutal prisons for six more years where he continued to endure brutal torture. Richard Wormbrand lived to be 91 years old. He eventually ended up here in the United States. You can still see videos of him on YouTube. He lived to be 91 years old, and he was known as a man who had joy in the Lord all the way to the end of his life. If God can do it for him, he can do it for us. Now, let me add to this. God so loved his people from eternity that he sent his only begotten son to be brutally tortured, scourged, and crucified so that we could be saved. Now here's a question. Did God sacrifice his son and then choose to abandon the very people he sacrificed his son for? Did God do that? Would God the Father treat his son's sacrifice this way? Or, we could ask, did Jesus die so that we could know a God who would forsake his people in their greatest hour of need? And the answer, of course, is absolutely not. All right, what is, <clears throat> Scripture teaches us that whatever is done to those who belong to Christ is done to Christ himself. And so God will not do that to his son, and therefore he won't do it to his people. Now, folks, I, obviously, I, I don't want to be a martyr. I don't pray for martyrdom. I, abs I, I don't know how more sincere I could be. I mean, I, I pray that none of us, none of us ever have to go through that kind of suffering. Not you, not your kids, not your grandkids. Right? I got a wife and kids, too. Hopefully, maybe one day I'll have grandkids, you know, if I don't kill them when they're teenagers. But anyway. <clears throat> but, folks, look. I, I, I know this is not fun. To discuss, But if we do, if we do, and we might, we really have to realize that, folks. If we do, again, we have to believe. We have to believe that God will give us the grace to endure it and cling to him in faith. <clears throat> now, there's one more aspect of us having confidence in the face of our enemies. 
that I want to deal with. Now, it's the most important one of all, and it's the most encouraging of all, okay? So we're, we're going to end up good, okay? So the meal's not going to be ruined, all right? Now, in verse 1, David said, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now, we already dealt with this. It's a rhetorical question, of course. The answer is obviously no one. David, again, had such confidence in the Lord <clears throat> that the Lord would preserve his life. That again, remember, even if a nation rose up to kill him, he says, I do not fear. Now, the question for us is, can we legitimately be just as confident as David? Confident in a different way. But can we be just as confident as David? And the answer is a resounding yes. We can and we should be. We should be. Maybe even more so. Why? Through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God gave his people victory over the greatest enemy any human being could ever face. What is the greatest enemy of humanity? It's sin. Sin is our greatest enemy. It's not man. Because it is sin that leads to being cast into eternal hell under the wrath of God. Again, let's listen to our Lord in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> he says, I say to you, he's speaking to us, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. He says, but I will warn you whom to fear. He says, fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. A God who can cast into eternal hell is a far greater terror. A terror, far greater terror than a man who can only kill the body. Jesus' death atoned for our sin and his sinless life, sinless life gave us a standing of, per of perfect righteousness before our Heavenly Father forever. Amen. So what happened was Jesus, our King did what a king does. He went out and he fought on our behalf and he destroyed our greatest enemy, which is sin. And by defeating sin, he defeated death for his people forever as well. Now, I understand we, we still might die physically once, but when Jesus returns, we will be physically resurrected from the grave with glorified bodies. We will never experience pain, suffering, misery or physical deaths ever again and during the interim if the lord does not return after we die we go into his glorious presence and we are fully conscious of who we are and the best of all we have been rescued from the wrath of god and his judgment so that we will we will never experience eternal death or separation from god in eternal hell we've been rescued from that this is why Paul the Apostle could say at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. And look at this. Then he taunts death. He taunts death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so, folks, look, no matter how, how much misery or pain or suffering our enemies inflict on us, the worst, the absolute worst they can ever do to us is temporary. It is temporary, okay? No matter or okay, how, uh, how numerous, 
our enemies are, it doesn't matter how powerful they are, okay, they, they will never defeat us, really. Folks, think about this. How can you defeat someone that ultimately you can't actually kill? How do you defeat someone like that? You can't. Now, more good news. In addition to this, every square foot of earth, land and sea both, will one day belong to the church. Now, folks, look, the world is on the march, and it's kind of funny to watch. It's a joke. The world is on the march as if one day it's going to own and rule this world and finally rid itself of God and his people. But Scripture tells us that Jesus will one day return and establish his kingdom forever. And so he's going to judge and destroy his enemies and, of course, our enemies. And he will bring about the new heavens and the new earth where he will be the king. Now, according to Romans 8, 17, the saints are joint heirs with Christ. And so Jesus is going to be king, but he is going to share his kingdom with all of his beloved people. This is why, this is why we should have tremendous confidence in the face of our enemies. Now, I'm not saying we should be boastful or arrogant. There's a difference. There's a difference, okay? But we ought to have, with these promises in mind, we ought to have unflinching resolve that ultimately every one of our enemies has already lost. All right, folks, the future belongs to the children of God it will never belong to our enemies. And so in Christ, in Christ, we can say with utmost confidence, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, against us, our heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, against us, in spite of this, I, we shall be confident. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. Father, please increase our faith. Father, there may be people here that are, that are suffering or, or dealing with difficulties. Uh, Father, we pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them, give them the faith to see that you are not only able but willing to bring them through whatever it is that they are going through at this time. And Father, I pray that you would give each and every one of us faith to, to deal with whatever it is that you have for us uh, as your people in this nation. Help us to uh, remain faithful no matter what. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen.